Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of Green and Red podcast. I am your co-host, Scott Parkin, in Berkeley, California. And as always, I am joined by... Uh, Bob Bazenko today back in Ohio. And as always, thank you for watching or listening. And uh, we ask you to subscribe. Uh, hit that button if you're looking at it on YouTube. Subscribe on your favorite uh, podcast platform. Share it, obviously. Uh, rate and review it. Follow us on social media. And um, if you really like us and you have a few bucks laying around, you could even give us uh, a donation. And if you want to donate, check us out at greenandredpodcast.org and hit that support button. Or uh, better yet, uh, become a recurring donor at, I guess it's not really better, it's about the same. But uh, go to patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast and become a recurring donor. We have a small but mighty uh, base of donors on Patreon. Uh, we like to call them our, uh, affectionately call them our M19 Brigade. And so please join the M19 Brigade. Yeah, And we're not far removed from M19, which was the the day of uh, Ho Chi Minh and Malcolm X's birthdays when we actually put out an encore. We've been doing that a lot lately. So if you miss stuff the first time around, um, you have a chance to, to catch it now. We've become quite tech savvy where we can repost our episodes. <laughs> um, so uh, getting into today's episode, we're right up on the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in. Uh, on June 17th, five men were arrested breaking into the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate Hotel in Washington, D.C. They were part of a group that operated out of the Nixon White House called the Plumbers. Their job was to investigate leaks in the White House, in the White House conduct other surveillance and sabotage against Nixon's political enemies. One of the heads of the Plumbers was Egil Bud Krogh, uh, who passed away in early 2020, but he had written a memoir about his time in the Nixon administration with the Plumbers with his uh, son, Matt Krogh, who is joining us today. Uh, hey, Matt, welcome to the Green and Red podcast. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Uh, yep. Uh, they have a new book out, which is actually coming out in the fall, called The White House Plumbers. Um, and we are going to be talking with Matt about uh, the book and about the break-in and about his dad's experience with the plumbers. Uh, the book's actually coming out in the fall. HBO is actually making a miniseries based on the book, which will also be out in the fall featuring Woody Harrelson and Justin Thoreau. Um, and then, you know, Matt also, uh, just for folks, Matt and I actually have a, some professional uh, overlap. We work together. Matt is actually a professional change maker, also working on issues around climate change, fossil fuels, policy, uh, based in Bellingham, Washington. And so um, we're maybe talk a little bit about that, too. But we're uh, grateful to have Matt with us today. So welcome to Green and Red, Matt. Thank you. Maybe just as a just a sort of like kind of kickoff question, maybe we could start with around the origins of the book. And I, I believe this is the second book that you had written with your dad around uh, these issues. You had written one, you had co-written one called Integrity, I believe. Um, but maybe just talk about how, you know, this book came about. Sure. Um, so the, this, the second book is actually um, mostly the same as the first book with some updates and uh, a little bit more. Um, backstory from family and other folks who were involved at the time. Um, so, you know, that when HBO has, has decided to film a miniseries that should be coming out in October, um, based on the book and in part on the book. Um, and so the sort of the updating the re-releases intended to better match what HBO is doing with the with the story overall. Um, but the the origin of the first book, um, so 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 my dad uh, was the original head of the plumbers. And I think one of the misconceptions uh, that's out there is that he had anything to do with the Watergate break-in directly. He didn't. Uh, what he did have was uh, the responsibility for setting up the entire plumber system, um, putting in place the team uh, that eventually decided to execute the Watergate break-in. Um, but prior to that, uh, you know, part of what was really problematic um, in the cover-up of Watergate and all the rest of that was the initial actions that were approved by the plumbers to try to stop national security leaks. And we can get into some more detail about that. Um, but, you know, sort of long story short, my dad uh, pled guilty 
um, to uh, approving the breaking of Daniel Fielding's, um, sorry, Dr. Fielding's office. He was Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist at the time. Ellsberg had released the Pentagon Papers. They were considered a national security concern by the president. And so the entire plumber's operation was put in place to plug security leaks, hence the, hence the plumber's name. They were actually called the Special Investigations Unit. So after all the things that happened with Watergate went down, Watergate is sort of this package of um, crimes and cover-up that's inclusive of this initial crime. Um, my dad ended up pleading guilty. Uh, he did time in a maximum security federal penitentiary, uh, a little bit less time in a uh, sort of a halfway house on the way out. But, you know, he had regretted his, uh, his part in all the different things that set the stage for Watergate, that set the stage for the downfall of the Nixon administration. But he had also been encouraged by the lawyer who helped uh, get him reinstated to the bar, a man who later became a federal judge named Bill Dwyer, um, who had told him, look, you can, you can plead guilty. We're going to get you reinstated if we're lucky. But you can't make any money off of like doing a book right away or anything like that. So some decades later, my dad had spent his time trying to, I think, atone, trying to understand exactly why everything went so wrong, uh, how what he had done and the different elements of decision-making within Nixon White House had led to an unraveling. And so the book, uh, Integrity, uh, with the subtitle of Good People, Bad Choices, and Life Lessons from the White House, was intended to uh, serve as sort of a cautionary tale or a roadmap for people who get into positions where they're trying to do the right thing and it might go terribly awry and tell one sort of very, uh, a, a small story with you know some pretty clear sidewalls on it about how people can uh, not fail so so publicly as he did. You know, uh, you have actually said that the leaks that they were trying to plug were around national security and that national security being a mo main motivation why your dad got involved. Could you actually speak a little bit more about that? Like what, what exactly around national security were they concerned about? Sure. So, I mean, the, the, uh, the times were, were fraught, right? I think the, uh, the Vietnam War in particular was at the top of everyone's mind. Um, there were negotiations during the Cold War about the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. Um, and so, you know, from, from the perspective of folks in the White House, Nixon, um, Kissinger, um, you know, national policies around what the White House was planning to do, what, what their plans looked like to, and they did want to exit Vietnam. Now, they weren't very effective at doing it for quite some time, but uh, they didn't want to, and they had plans to exit Vietnam. Um, they also, of course, wanted to negotiate these nuclear missile limitation treaties, and leaks were happening, um, and they were real. And, you know, the, in particular, they called it the SALT treaty, um, leaking of the uh, negotiating fallback position for the U.S. was one real concern. Um, the Watergate paper, I'm sorry, the Pentagon Papers, however, uh, were a bit more interesting story. They were the first leak that caused the concern and that created the plumbers. And they were actually um, um, various sorts of classified documents associated with previous administrations' um, plans in Vietnam. And Daniel Ellsberg, the one who released them, wanted to see a change in uh, the Nixon administration's policies that re reflected the understanding of these papers showed that uh, the U.S. goals in Vietnam were failing. And, you know, nothing was going to ever succeed. It was time to get out. Um, but Nixon, uh, and in particular Kissinger, were deeply concerned about the ongoing potential for further leaks that were actual current policy. Um, so, you know, they put in place uh, or asked my dad to set up a, uh, this, this plumber's unit in order to make sure that further leaks of current policy didn't happen. So the, you know, it was, as I said, it was a fraught time. People were very concerned with exiting Vietnam. Um, this particular leak was showing the, the failures of ongoing policies um, to actually get out of Vietnam. Uh, the Cold War circumstances were there. And my dad, honestly, um, a bit of a, a true believer in, in hierarchy and how uh, authority flowed down from the president. And so here he is, he's given us task to stop national security leaks He's told it's a matter of national, uh, uh, real national security. There's real national security threats. And so he puts together a team, which ends up operating uh, entirely independently of any real oversight that's filled with zeal to stop these leaks. And that national security, I think, justification uh, really led to a lot of the, the bad decisions they ended up making. 
I think everybody kind of has some sense of what Watergate is, but actually begins with Daniel Ellsberg. Without Ellsberg, there there might not have been a Watergate. And, you know, I think it's worth mentioning because I'm not sure people have kind of too much of a notion about this. What what Nixon wanted to do was to, you know, kind of uh, discredit Ellsberg. And so they wanted to uh, find, you know, any kind of incriminating information they could in his psychiatrist's office. Perhaps that he was crazy, perhaps that he was a Soviet mole, who knows. Um, so do you want to just kind of talk about how that kind of got started? And also, one of the things I found really was was when he when Liddy comes into the picture, because that seems to just kind of like just something blows up at that point. So, yeah, Liddy, Liddy is an interesting character. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, the uh, whether it's, you know, Bernard Barker and Eugenio Martinez and, and the other folks in the sort of the Cuban-American uh contractor positions for for Watergate or the break-ins or or Liddy or Howard Hunt, like each of the people has these amazing, I'm not going to say they were good, but amazing backstories. Um, They're very complicated and very interesting people. But yeah, I think think it's one of the things in particular, my my dad, who who really was a good person, uh, didn't really like to talk about in the story very much is exactly that. The goal wasn't to find national security information uh, that might have been hidden at Dr. Fielding's office. The goal was to find information that would discredit, as you said, Daniel Ellsberg. Um, you know, and, and I think it fits pretty well into sort of the retrospective perspective we have on uh, Nixon and dirty tricks and all the different things that happened during his campaigns. Uh, and all the things that were later uncovered uh, that happened in his White House. Um, but in this particular case, uh, Ellsberg had become a, a public figure um, uh, from releasing the, the Pentagon Papers. And, you know, the hope was that, and I, and I use the word hope loosely, that they would find dirt um, about his mental state, who he was, anything he might have told um, his psychiatrist about perhaps being associated with the Soviets. Um, one of the concerns was that an entire set of the Pentagon Papers had arrived at the Soviet embassy in D.C. And so you can imagine all the different folks who are looking into this and conspiracy theories a- a- abounding you know, about who who, feel, uh, who Ellsberg is and you know what he had chosen to do. The irony uh, is that none of the folks who were involved in planning the break-in of, of Dr. Fielding's office uh, knew that psychiatrists really don't keep notes. So there was nothing to find. Um, you know, because maybe some of them needed therapy and <laughs> maybe, maybe they needed it, didn't get it. Um, and, uh, so just, just didn't understand, you know, the, the circumstances. And so, you know, the, the goal was for it to be a, um, you know, a subtle break in leaving no real trace. Um, but instead when they found no notes, um, Lydia and Hunt decided they were going to trash the place and make it look like a burglary. And, uh, you know, when, when they brought back pictures, uh, and then I had a couple cameras um, uh, and showed the pictures to both my dad and we then showed them to John Ehrlichman, you know, uh, who was uh, counsel with the president at the time. You know, the, the comment from Ehrlichman was like, what, what the hell part of undercover don't you understand? Um, or perhaps it was under clandestine, not undercover. And uh, yeah, so I, I think it's, it's an interesting part of the story, the, the absolute failure to understand that they would never get anything from the particular action they'd chosen to do. Um, and then also one of the interesting failures later is, I, I don't know if it's the sole reason the field and breaking got uncovered, um, but during the Watergate investigations, um, you know, they were investigating the breaking at the Watergate Hotel. Uh, this came to light because of a camp that the CIA um, turned over to the investigators um, apparently, Liddy, who you brought up uh, a moment ago, you know, he thought of himself at the time as very much of a, a spy craft kind of guy. He had taken pictures with a, a small camera that the CIA had loaned them uh, and forgot to remove the film. And so when he returned the camera with the film in it to the CIA, they sat on it for a year. And then when the investigation came out, turned it over to the investigators. So it's highly likely that none of this would have been uncovered. And a lot of the cover-up of Watergate was intended to cover up this initial event. Um, it's highly likely that none of it would have come to light uh, had Liddy not screwed up. Well, in the break, and they forgot to take the tape off the lock. So, Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, the, the guys I, didn't I get, stop. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I get the sense that 
because Lydia basically, I think your dad confronts him, right? And and Lydia says he was he was prepared to kill somebody if he needed to, if somebody. And I get the sense that's the point at which your your dad realized that this had already gone too far. Is that? I, I think that's right. I mean, my, my dad uh, eventually uh, was invited to leave the plumbers in September when he refused to approve a, uh, uh, an illegal wiretap of a serviceman who they were worried had been um, leaking some of the salt, the strategic arms limitation treaty uh, negotiations. Um, and so, you know, honestly, it's, it's a, it, I think one, one of the interesting components of the book and I, and I hope it's reflected in how it's written. My, my, my dad really at, in public life and professional life is a man of, was a man of great integrity and character. And this is, this slice of his life is so far outside his normal behavior um, that I think the, the lessons of what happens in you know, very closed, very small societies uh, without oversight is, is one of the key lessons. I mean, they took basically six guys, um, and, and a gal uh, into room 16 in the old executive office building. Um, you know, they had their other jobs, but they would sneak into this room. It was a, it was a closed room. All they knew it was, you know, a single directive from the top down that this is absolutely critical to national security. You have to get it done. Um, and so the, the any means necessary sort of ethos was unquestionably entrenched in that group of folks. And, you know, I think Liddy wanted to use any means necessary anyhow, uh, but as the, you know, as time went on and, the, and this group and the fervor is growing and this concern, and again, with no oversight, no real communication with folks outside of room 16 on these issues, um, that kind of environment, I think, is, uh, is dangerous. And it's one where you put it in, you know, the, the White House with a directive from a couple of the more powerful people in the world to get it done, and you're going to do what it takes to get it done. And I think, uh, you know, my, my dad would not natively have done that sort of thing. I think some others were inclined towards that kind of work to begin with. Well, and all the presidents met Woodward and Bernstein call your dad. What was it? Uh, White House, Mr. Clean or something like that, or kind of Mr. Clean, you know, kind of yeah, like nah. he was the that was his reputation. And so and, and by and large, he was uh, they, they nicknamed him Evil Krog as opposed to Eggle Krog because yeah. he would never do anything evil It's an ironic nickname. Right. But I, th I think one, one of the um, one of the more interesting parts of what I've you know sort of heard secondhand since um, also is that realistically the the need for the plumbers was being driven by Kissinger, and Kissinger was deeply concerned um, that Ellsberg had, and in fact I believe did have um, his secret sort of war game plans to nuke North Vietnam. And Kissinger really didn't want Ellsberg uh, out in public, uh, undiscredited, if we say that. Um, deeply concerned about those plans being leaked, and I, you know, I'm not sure that Nixon, Nixon was was in principle infuriated by uh, national security leaks. I think Kissinger was very self invested in seeing none of that come out. Yeah, it seems like Kissinger had envisioned himself having a still having like a, a place or a role within that liberal establishment, which I'm sure would have been horrified by the prospect of nuke, nuking, dropping a bomb on, on North Vietnam. Um, I'm, I'm also kind of curious about uh, E. Howard Hunt. Um, you know, the, when, we, when we think about Watergate in the uh, annals of, of political history, there's G. Gordon Liddy and there's, there's E. Howard Hunt. I mean, there's Nixon and Ehrlichman and Haldeman and all them. But I'm kind of curious, you know, he, uh, Howard Hunt had like, you know, played a role actually in the Bay of Pigs. Some of the Cubans who were part of the Watergate uh, break-in were also like veterans of, of the Bay of Pigs operation. And um, I'm just kind of curious about what sort of role Hunt played. You, you know, I, I, I'll be honest, you know, Scott, I think um, one of the failures of the book in terms of keeping it relatively small and intentionally so was not really diving into all the interplay between the cast of characters in room 16. And I think, uh, I, I, I don't really know, honestly, I, you know, my dad told me stories about him. Uh, one of the things that apparently on his, his deathbed, he had confessed to being part of the, with, with various folks from his Cuban contingent, uh, part of the plan to assassinate Kennedy. I don't know if it's true. You know, it's, it's a, a deathbed thing he told his son. Um, but you know, he appears to have been, uh, very, 
very mixed up in a whole lot of things, but he just didn't really shine through in my dad's stories as a, as a prime driver in room 16. It really seemed like, you know, he was part of the break in, uh, at Fielding's office. He was along, um, Liddy seemed to be driving a lot of it. Um, and my dad at the time was co-directing, uh, the plumbers with David Young and, he seems like he was there, um, but not a huge influence. I mean, he, he was there as Kissinger's guy. Inside convention hall, McGovern said, I need someone to carry the South. They picked poor Tom Eagleton, but folks found him out. That liberal press, they got to know it all. You are listening to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red Podcast. And as always, we thank you for listening to us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And then, as always, uh, we would like to ask you to subscribe. Uh, to us on whatever format you listen to, whether it be on podcast or on our YouTube channel. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are on Linktree slash Green and Red Podcast. And we now also have postcards. And if you have a coffee house or a library or a bookstore or someplace like that in your area, that might be uh, a great spot to put some of these. Just ask us and we will send them to you free of charge to spread the word about the Green and Red Podcast. And you can email us at greenredpodcast at gmail to get uh, a, a packet of your of your postcards. Uh, and then if you really like us, you can uh, donate. And, you know, we, we are very happy to get the donation and have the small base of small donors that we have. Uh, and so you can either become a patron at patreon.com backslash green red podcast, or you can make a one-time donation at green and red podcast.org and just hit that support button. It's also on the postcards. Uh, and so, uh, you know, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Well, McGovern took Shriver and he started to run. Sarge said units, let's have a little fun. They ran into trouble almost everywhere they went. There was a big committee to elect the president. I'll tell you now. Your father got out fairly early. Uh, when was that? Like late 70, 1971 when the, he because Nixon wanted the salt leak. Right. He wanted to do like what? A, he wanted to do polygraphs on like 500 people or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a story in its own right. You know? Yeah, like in, in an afternoon. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how did how did um how did your father how how did this break open how was he you know uh, arrested uh what what you know you want to kind of walk through that you know the the you know how he you know how they caught him how this thing fell apart and and you know he becomes the first person sentenced in in this entire um, mm -hmm. Watergate affair. So. Well, he was the first person sentenced, and he was also the first and I think maybe one of two to plead guilty out of all the different folks who who went to jail. Um, and so, you know, as I mentioned, the, uh, the, the camera had been returned to the CIA with photographic evidence of what had gone down, um, still within it. And so the, the Watergate investigation was you know, really casting a, a fairly wide net because <laughs> there was a lot to catch, uh, with that wide net. And when my dad was first called up to testify, uh, he was instructed, um, to, and, I think this is the direct quote, lie like you've never lied before in your life. Um, and he was told, again, that the justification for lying uh, was national security, right? This, this a whole lot of what happened in the cover-up was uh, initial, to cover up the initial work of the plumbers, even more so than what had already been revealed in the Watergate uh, hotel break-in. And so he did. Um, and then as, as more was uncovered, and what he lied about was whether or not he had been involved in any, uh, the question he was asked was, had he been involved in any national security operations in California on the dates of this, this break-in? And, uh, you know, so they're specifically asking about national security, and he's specifically being told that national security means he has to lie about national security. <laughs> it just keeps, keeps coming back around. And so... Uh, eventually, um, you know, with, with further investigations, um, uh, it became clear that, in, in fact, there had been a national security operation in California on those days that he had been involved. Um, and he, you know, ended up you know, sort of in, in terms of wrestling with his conscience and with his lawyer. Um, he was not actually wrestling with his lawyer, but speaking with his lawyer, um, you know, decided that there was no there's no way that a national security defense could continue to justify not telling the truth about what had happened. And he also uh, decided that 
uh, it was critical that he not get any beneficial treatment from plea bargaining um, or, uh, you know, t- turning in the other folks in the White House. And so at that point, of course, he was no longer at the White House or the Department of Transportation. Um, after this had all been exposed, he had resigned from transportation. Um, and so he decided to plead guilty um, and to ensure that he was sentenced um, according to what he had pled guilty to before he started talking about anything else. He didn't want to get uh, a reduced sentence because of any of the things that he disclosed later. Um, he didn't think that was right. And so he, he was sentenced. He did serve four and a half months um, in the federal penitentiary and another, I think, four, four and a half months in the, the minimum security on the way out. Um, but realistically, it was uh, he, he spent some quality time um, trying to figure out if he could possibly justify under national security um, the lying. And of course, decided that he couldn't. He did uh, perjure himself. And whether or not uh, national security, of course, could justify any of what they had done. And I think a large part of the, the lesson that's in the book is uh, that national security couldn't justify you know, having the, the, the primary executive you know, government in the country breaking the very laws it was designed to protect. And so part of what you'll read about in the book, should you choose to buy it, um, is the, you know, the oath of office that civil servants take and also folks who are elected to office, they don't take an oath to defend themselves or to you know, defend their fortunes, even though it seems like that's what they do. They take an oath to defend the Constitution. And when you've taken an oath to defend the Constitution, then you violate that Constitution, and particularly the Fourth Amendment in this case. Uh, you know, that, that, that should never be justified. And I think that's one of the lessons that my dad came back to, which had he been asked it in abstract in the advance, uh, of the, these crimes, he, he would have absolutely not done them. But I think the, you know, the, the, the one clear lesson about operating in these very small, close societies is that you can get far off track from yourself. And that's certainly what happened. Uh, you know, it's interesting. In one of his early meetings, he, uh, Mark Felt appeared, which uh, you know, I, w- I was not aware of. Did he have any inkling or hint that, that Felt was actually the guy talking to, to Woodward and Bernstein, or did that shock him like the rest of us when it finally came out you know i think it shocked him uh he had he had speculated at various times about who it could have been and yeah. he had a list of like five or six folks and felt was on there but yeah. i don't think anybody really knew until felt disclosed it doing a little research i i found an article it was an interview with your dad actually in the berkeley barb maybe from the 80s maybe even the 70s where he actually talks about that if he had like said no to the fielding break-in, the break-in of Ellsberg psychiatrist, then it could have actually prevented Watergate, which I, mm-hmm. is speculation. But I'm wondering, you know, how much of that was like a big part of his story that he told that he could have actually prevented Watergate and brought and prevented the bringing down of Nixon at least around that. Yeah, it's definitely the story my dad believed. Um, it, whether or not it was true is a different question, and so I think the. Uh, he, he was correct in taking a look at all that, that happened and bringing together this particular team with, you know, Liddy and Hunt and David Young and then the folks, uh, the, the outside the White House volunteers, uh, Bernard Barker and Felipe de Diego and Martinez. Like, this, the, they created this circumstance where, um, that, that, like I mentioned, anything goes ethos to protect national security was at its core. They got to operate in secret. They had their own budget. Um, they got to choose their own tactics. Uh, you name it. And so, so my dad was right that 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 again that small close society operating that way uh, with those same characters for the most part that they wouldn't have worked as a group to do to, to implement the, the Watergate break-in. Um, so he he did bring together that team. What he didn't seem to think a whole lot about was. Uh, all the other you know, similar work that these very same people had done in other contexts. Um, you know, Howard Hunt had been associated with a lot of very bad things uh, in his past. Liddy obviously was willing to do uh, virtually anything. Um, you know, the, the Cuban American tension had been in and out of various types of uh, espionage operations for some of them for decades. And so, you know, 
I, again, I think my dad was correct that in the context of the White House, um, pulling together this team and operating the way they did set the stage for what they did with Watergate. Um, it's also the case that each of these people individually had been involved in sort of work in various ways that my dad never had been and probably didn't know or really understand. Um, so I think the, again, his, his story, I think in itself, there's the real kernel of truth in his analysis of what happened, but whether or not Watergate would have happened otherwise with these same folks and, and other types of, of uh, circumstances, I think it's a, that's a bit of a reach. I think we, we saw a lot more happening with the Nixon administration that was uncovered um, than my dad knew about, including you know various other break-ins in the institutes that were uh, suggested by his boss, uh, Ehrlichman, suggested by Nixon himself. Um, so it's, uh, to a certain extent, what they did was par for the course. And on the other hand, you know, the, it, he really did bring together and assemble the team that ended up executing the Watergate break in themselves. So, yeah, I mean, you can, you can pick, right. Did, did he, could he have prevented Watergate by not pushing this? Something else would have happened. Would it have been uncovered? I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to imagine Nixon walking away from something like that. Um, yeah. you know, at the end, um, you know, your, your dad's kind of the first domino to fall, but then on August 9th, 1974, Nixon goes down and he made a point of, well, first going to Fielding's office, but then um, having, I think, a couple meetings with Nixon and coming away, you know, kind of, uh, I guess, is saddened might be the right word that Nixon just kind of never really kind of thought he did anything wrong. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think uh, for very for very good reasons, don't get me wrong, uh, the the perspective of Nixon in uh, modern times is, is deeply colored by all the crimes that he was party to that were uncovered in the Watergate investigations and more. Um, he was obviously deeply flawed um, and I don't think amoral, but uh, willing to be immoral at different times. And the other side of that is that a lot of folks don't know he was reelected in the landslide for his second term. He was hugely popular um, at the time. Uh, a whole lot of the policies that you know my dad and others got to work on under the Nixon administration, whether it's you know was returning rights to Native Americans, um, their their drug policy, which my dad uh, initially put in place, uh, was very very progressive. Um, there were there were good things happening in the Nixon administration, and uh, you know, Nixon, I think an incredibly complicated individual in his own right, he wanted to see good things happen from government. And I think, you know, whether or not that anything goes ethos and the, in room 16 with the plumbers is something that, you know, he ascribed to as well. I don't know. Um, but I think, I think from, from the conversations I had with my dad, a uh, little bit of what I've read of Nixon's thinking on the matter, he was doing the right thing to try to do the right thing for, for America and from the white house and those, you know, the, the petty details of whether or not it was, you know, criminal act, you know, whatever. Right. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it, it was interesting. He was, a he was an incredibly powerful leader at the time. It would have been nice to see all that power, you know, be based in the rule of law as well. Uh, but you know, was, was your dad also working on gun control? He didn't. I, I don't think he did much on gun control at all. What he strikes did. me is that that's kind of one of Liddy's that he's pissed off at Nixon because Nixon's moving forward on gun control. And Liddy, a big NRI guy, you know, so, yeah. you know, Nixon and I, I know um, there's a, a book which refers to Nixon as the last liberal, which is, you know, I think closer to the truth than a lot of us, you know, considering what's happened since then. So on some of these issues like, you know, um, drug, drug control, gun control, drug laws, things like that, um, you actually did mm -hmm. see kind of a, a, a continuation of those old kind of new deal liberal policies. Um, my dad told it as sort of a side story of, of all of this, but I think it's actually uh, an interesting, you know, individual example of what was happening and what, how some of what happened in the Nixon administration, like seeded problems later. Um, sorry, seeded like casting yep. seeds. Um, uh, so there was, there was a huge problem with crime um, in Washington, DC in the early seventies. And some of it was uh, ascribed to heroin addicts, um, you know, looking to find ways to, to fund their, their heroin habit. And a number of those folks were servicemen coming back from Vietnam. And so, you know, one of the concerns for Nixon 
he wanted to be a, a law and order president. He, he had run on the law and order cam, you know, platform. Um, and he also wanted to support the military. And he was deeply concerned that um, servicemen either actually were coming back, very addicted to heroin and um, contributing to the crime in DC and elsewhere, uh, or perhaps they're being mischaracterized and he didn't want to see servicemen, uh, their reputations tarnished. So my dad was sent to Vietnam, to Turkey, um, to some other places to get an understanding of the flow of drugs, to get it uh, put in place some drug testing protocols in Vietnam to see who was actually addicted to heroin on their way home. Um, and discovered, among other things, that uh, a lot smaller percentage of servicemen leaving Vietnam were addicted uh, to heroin than anybody had thought. So that was good. Um, but they also took a look at what was happening on the ground in Washington, D.C. And there's a, uh, and elsewhere, but there's a, a very real heroin problem. So my dad spent time working with researchers and concocting a, a drug response plan that I think was the first one we've had um, and came to, to Nixon and said, look, uh, we, we, we worked with the experts and we've seen what's happening with crime. We've seen what's happening with addiction. And we proposed this budget to deal with it, which is going to be 90% treatment and 10% law enforcement. And Nixon said, well, if that's what the experts say, that's great, but don't tell anybody about the treatment. Just focus on the law enforcement. We ran on a law enforcement platform you got to go hard on crime, hard on drugs. And so they did. And then you fast forward to, you know, the, the Reagan administration where they had, I don't know, zero on treatment and a hundred percent going, we've got to deal with, we got to fight the war on drugs, got to fight, 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 fight. That mentality was what was put in place in the Nixon administration. But the reality was this 90% being spent on treatment. And I think things like that ended up infusing and influencing American society in ways that were still, I think, unraveling. I had read a book on the, the history on the war on drugs and actually was the only time in, in the history of the war on drugs where the U S government had focused on treatment hmm. in a large scale sort of way, you know, cause then we get into the Reagan years, then we get into the Clinton years and so on and so forth. And it's all just like police and prisons and crime bills yeah. and things like that. Yeah. We're um, I think we're getting close to the end. I don't know if Scott, I was kind of wanted to kind of do a, uh, take it up to, to current and, and, um, you know, Watergate at, at the time was cataclysmic, right? The American, you know, the Imperial presidency, King Richard, um, Nixon called it a third rate burglary. And then, you know, and not too long after that, you see Iran Contra, various Clinton scandals, um, you know, Trump with, you know, uh, what, what did your dad think of that? I mean, did it kind of change the way he looked back on what he had done? Uh, because, you know, I don't want to call it a third rate burglary, but what we've seen, after Watergate, I mean, I think Nixon would be spinning right now to see what these guys get away with, especially the last four or five years. Yeah, I mean, again, we, we can talk about whether or not uh, if my dad had acted differently, Watergate, the Watergate break in in the hotel uh, would have happened or not. Um, I do think that every presidential administration had, of course, bent the rules some in different ways, um, but. I think the personality of Nixon, um, the things that he was really concerned about his you know, very strong uh, political combat instincts, all the rest of that, um, probably drove the Nixon White House into more illegal acts than perhaps we had seen prior. Um, I don't know that for a fact, but I think the uh, sort of the structure of how the you know, everything is in place with these sort of top-down fiefdoms under um, different you know, leaders in the White House doing their own thing. I think it may have set the stage for more and more unraveling. Um, the other thing that I, I think a lot of folks don't know um, is how much continuity there is between uh, administrations of the same party. And so a lot of the folks who were around or you know, participating in the culture of the Nixon administration continued. I mean, some people may be familiar with Dick Cheney or Donald Rumsfeld, you know, and other folks who were part of the Nixon administration uh, who led cataclysmic invasions of foreign countries against international and I think also U.S. law in various ways, um, they really started their careers in the Nixon White House. And so I think, uh, as you described the, the other things that happened, I think the various cultural components of how things you know, roll, and I, I've, I've talked about you know, Room 16 as a small, closed society. The White House is not a small, 
closed society really, but it is an entire culture underneath each administration. And those folks who are serving under Nixon continued on. Um, you know, the, the domestic policy staff uh, would have annual reunions for years to come. You know, dozens, if not hundreds of them would show up. Actually, one really funny story for, for me is like I, I was working on a variety of environmental issues, especially around some, some concerns about consumerism. And uh, my dad had gone back to D.C. He was living in Seattle uh, for the I, I didn't know at the time, but for the domestic policy reunion. And he came back and we were hanging out and he's like, what do you think about Walmart? It's like Walmart. I think, well, dad, I think they're, they're actually really problematic corporation. You know, they do a lot of bad things. He's like, you don't think that they're really a great American institution that provides high quality products to Americans at a low cost. Like dad, have you been talking to Cheney again? Like he just come back from talking to Cheney. It was like selling him on, on, on how great Walmart is. So, you know, there's a lot of continuity between these folks over the years. Um, you know, actually, uh, I have like two quick questions or two questions. One's going to be quick. Um, but my first question is, you know, your <clears throat> your work is you work on climate issues. You work at a, an organization running campaigns against fossil fuels and around the climate crisis and stuff. I'm kind of curious how your dad, especially, and you've been doing that as long as I've known you, but I'm kind of curious about how your dad sort of saw your work in the last, in the last few years. You know, it's interesting. I think he was largely, largely supportive um, of the, the idea that I'm working to actually make positive change. And I think it, it was interesting too, because, uh, you know, we talked about it at, at some length at different times. Like he understands that there's a climate crisis or he understood that there's a climate crisis um, and that we have to do something about it. And I think he appreciates, you know, the, the work that groups like Rainforest Action Network, the groups like uh, Stand on Earth, where I work, um, do to actually affect the changes that need to happen. He, he, he gets it here. He got it. Um, the part where it sort of unraveled in our conversations is I mentioned you know, a bit of a, and a, was a bit of an authoritarian. Like he really appreciated, appreciates top down line of command. He was in the military. Um, and when folks like Cheney or Rumsfeld would tell him about the absolute, you know, essential nature of doing things like um, opening up Canada's tar sands further, um, you know, and for folks who aren't familiar, Canada's tar sands are perhaps the, uh, also called the oil sands, the, one of the dirtiest forms of crude oil or sources of eventually crude oil when you process it um, on the planet. One of the largest uh, potential carbon bombs that continue to uh, continue to exploit it. Um, he was, he was convinced that the tar sands exploitation was a great thing because he yeah, was here in North America, all the rest of it. I'm like, dad, look, you can't both support action on climate and reduction of fossil fuels and aggressively increasing the exploitation of the dirtiest source of oil on the planet, or perhaps close to the dirtiest. And, uh, so, so we had, you know, I would say some dynamic tension between us in terms of what the, the specifics are, what kind of changes need to be made, but, you know, he, he worked in a place where he was trying to make good change. Um, you know, sometimes he really did um, in the White House and had a lot of power to do that. And so he, he appreciates the effort. Uh, some of the details, I think we didn't never quite agreed on. It's, it's, it's interesting on the environmental, just <clears throat> one last time on that, on the argument that Bob had brought up the, around the Nixon being the last liberal. It's like, you know, it was the Nixon administration that started the Environmental Protection Agency. And I, I feel like there's a strain of liberal Republicanism that was like, you know, actually thought that keep having clean water, clean air, all of that was actually fairly important. Um, my, I have one last question. Was Bob has anything else? No, I'm, I'm good. Okay, my my only last question is around the book and around the HBO miniseries. If you want to just tell us about when that's coming out and like where we can, obviously yeah. we can watch HBO, but like just tell us a little bit about the book and the release. Yeah, so so the book uh, and the HBO series have the same name, The White House Plumbers, um, and. Uh, you know, they've been filming it, finished filming maybe nine, 10 months ago and are, are finalizing edits. And so right now the, uh, the expectation is that the book will be released in October um, of this year, along with the miniseries called The White House Plumbers, uh, available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, whatnot for pre-order right now.
Um, so the mini series is going to be five one hour episodes. Um, has Lena Headey, uh, Justin Thoreau, uh, Woody Harrelson, a, a variety of other folks in there. And so it looks, it looks like it's going to be great. So I'm looking forward to seeing it. You're going to, you're going to get your name up on the screen on HBO. So that's great. <laughs> I think, uh, oh. I, I, I think I, I get to be a consulting producer. It was, oh. was, the, was the title. So we'll, nice. We'll, we'll, we'll make sure we describe you that as in our show notes as consulting producer. On consulting. <laughs> I've longed for that title for so long. <laughs> yeah. Matt, it's been great talking to you. Uh, no Thanks. Talking about White House Plumbers with Matt Krogh, book that he co-authored with his dad, uh, Eggle Bud Krogh. Folks, this is the Green and Red Podcast. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. And if you want to make a donation, uh, go to greenandredpodcast.org and hit the support button um, or become a patron at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast and uh, you know help support the show. We have a lot of great shows like this all the time. Um, it's been great talking and we will catch everyone later. Go out and make trouble, misbehave, all of that good stuff. And we're going to dedicate this next poem here to, to Spearhead X. The ex second in command in terms of this country. And the poem is called H2O GATE Blues. And if H2O is still water and GATE is still gate, what we're getting ready to deal on is the Watergate Blues. Let me see if I can dial this number right quick. Click. Sorry, the government you have elected is inoperative. Click, inoperative. Just how blind will America be? The world is on the edge of its seat, defeat on the horizon. Very surprising that we all could see the plight and still could not. Let me do that part again. Just how blind will America be? The world is on the edge of its seat, defeat on the horizon. Very surprising that we all could see the plight and claimed that we could not. Just how blind, America. Just as Vietnam exploded in the rice, snap, crackle, and pop could not stop people determined to be free. Just how blind will America be? The shock of a Vietnam defeat sent Republican donkeys scurrying down on Wall Street. And when the roll was called, it was Pepsi-Cola and Phillips 66. Boeing, Dow, and Lockheed. Ask them what they're fighting for and they'll never mention the economics of war. Ecological warfare, above all else, destroy the land. If we can't break the Asian will, we'll bomb the dikes and starve the man. America, the international Jekyll and Hyde, the land of a thousand disguises, sneaks up on you but rarely surprises. Plundering the Asian countryside in the name of Fu Man too. Afraid of shoeless, undernourished Cambodians While we strike Big wheat bargains with Russia Our nuclear enemy Just how blind, America But tell me Who was around where Hell Boggs died? And what was the cause of LBJ's untimely demise? And what really happened to J. Edgar Hoover? The king is proud of Patrick Gray While America's faith is drowning beneath that cesspool Watergate how long will the citizens sit and wait? It's looking like Europe in 38. Did they move to stop Hitler before it was too late? How long, America, before the consequences of keeping the school system segregated, allowing the press to be intimidated, watching the price of everything soar, and hearing complaints because the rich want more? It seems that Macbeth and not his lady went mad. We've let him eliminate the whole middle class. The dollar's the only thing we can't inflate while the poor go on without a new minimum wage. But what really happened to J. Edgar Hoover? The king is proud of Patrick Gray. And there are those who say America's faith is drowning beneath that cesspool, Watergate. How much more evidence do the citizens need that the election was sabotaged by trickery and greed? And if this is so, and who we got didn't win, let's do the whole goddamn election over again. The obvious key to the whole charade would be to run down all of the games they played. Oh, no.
Remember D the Beard and ITT, the slaughter of Attica, the CIA in Chile, knowing nothing about Allende at this time in the past, as I recollect. Augusta, Georgia, the nomination of Supreme Court Justice to head off the tapes. William Calley's executive interference in the image of John Wayne. Kent State, Jackson State, Southern Louisiana, hundreds of them authorized bombing raids. The chaining and gagging of Bobby Seale. Somebody tell these Maryland governors to be for real. And we recall all of these events just to prove that water buggers in the Watergate wasn't no news. The thing that seems to justify all of our fears is that all this went down in the last five years. But tell me, what really happened to J. Edgar Hoover? The king is proud of Patrick Gray while America's faith is drowning beneath that cesspool, Watergate. We leave America to ponder the image of justice from its new wave of leaders. Frank Rizzo, the high school graduate mayor of Philadelphia whose ignorance is surpassed only by those who voted for him. Richard Daly, imperial Napoleonic mayor of Chicago, who took over from Al Capone and continues to implement the same tactics. George Wallace, Lester Maddow, Strom Thurmond, Ronald Reagan, an almost endless list that won't be missed when at last America is purged. And the silent White House with the James brothers once in command. But see the sauerkraut mafia men deserting the sinking White House ship and their main mindless megalomaniac Ahab. McCord has blown, Mitchell has blown, no tap on my telephone. McCord has blown, Mitchell has blown, no tap on my telephone. Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell and Dean, it follows a pattern if you dig what I mean. Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell and Dean, it follows a pattern if you dig what I mean. And what are we left with now? Bumper stickers that say free the Watergate 500. Spy movies of the same name with a cast of thousands. And that ominous phrase that if Nixon knew, Ag knew. But Ag didn't knew enough to stay out of jail. And what really happened to J. Edgar Hoover? The king is proud of Patrick Gray. And there are those who swear they've seen King Richard. 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 Beneath that cesspool, Watergate. Ha, 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 ha.